Lehman Pascal. Welcome to the Integral Stage Meta Podcast, where we podcast podcasters, broadcast broadcasters, and generally reflect on people who are trying to bring forth higher, deeper, developmental, or transformative perspectives through online projects. Today, we're joined by David Fuller, journalist, filmmaker, driving force behind Rebel Wisdom, and noted curmudgeon about foreign policy discussions in ostensible higher wisdom forums. So let's start with a serious situation and then uh, broaden out to general questions about what goes wrong and what could go right in cultivating an integral level or metapolitical sense-making conversation around geopolitical realities. Um, why don't you tell us what's been pissing you off lately? <laughs> That's quite an <laughs> intro, Layman. Thank you. Yeah, I want to start by saying I haven't talked about any of this stuff publicly. My background, I mean, I'm sure some people watching this will know Rebel Wisdom, We've covered integral subjects quite a bit. We've covered game B, metamodernism, and all these kind of um, conversations about conversations, meta meta conversations, the meta web, the sense-making web. And in some ways, the rubber meets the road when it comes to talking about real-world events. With, you can talk about sense-making ad infinitum. And I've not talked about this publicly, even though my background is as a foreign affairs journalist. I started with the BBC, mostly as uh, on CFAX, trained as a video journalist, and then went to Channel 4 News in 2007, and then worked across their coverage. Channel 4 News is kind of regarded as the, the probably the top place in the UK for foreign affairs. Um, they won the International Emmy a couple of years in a row for the Syria coverage. Um, I uh, was nominated for an RTS, Royal Television Society Award, for a documentary I did about Syrian refugees in Lebanon. I'm kind of giving a little bit of background. And I'm, so I'm deeply interested in foreign affairs. I've kind of been covering it for a very long time. And I'm also been interested in Integral and in kind of the meta space and all of these different sort of frameworks and find them useful. But then I see the way that Foreign affairs is talked about largely online, largely on Facebook. And I just, I'm like, this is not, the quality of conversation just seems so incredibly poor. And there's a few reasons for that. I think going back, I think, I think Iraq sent a lot of people crazy. And that kind of rift that was caused by Iraq has not been healed yet. And there's this kind of unholy alliance between a kind of what I see as a kind of almost like nihilistic memeplex that you can kind of see embodied, particularly kind of like the Julian Assange, um, that I think there's a slippery slope towards it from places like Chomsky. And there's this unholy alliance of the worst of the right and the worst of the left that for me feels like the status quo nowadays. Like it, my background is as, I would describe it as, liberal interventionist and to be honest it feels like one of the one of the loneliest places on the map right now like there's there's no such I, I struggle to find other people who even kind of look at the world in the way that that I look at the world and I don't think people are aware of some of the backstory like for me that comes down to a value of I do believe that there is a responsibility that we have responsibilities to others I don't believe that and I think there's a lot of that's a very complex picture, of course, because you look at Iraq and you look at some of the kind of um, cynical uses of that kind of principle. And Iraq, I think, is another is a is another question. 
But I go back, I think one of the things that people are not aware of, we'll come to Syria in a second, because I think that's, people are looking at Syria through an Iraq lens that I think is just, I mean, it's factually nonsen nonsensical. Like for, for people to look at Syria through, oh, this is a American regime change war is just, I mean, it's just ludicrous. This is a, this is mostly, I mean, it's just solipsistic in, in the extreme to look at it that way, because principally it's a, the main players are Iran and the Gulf states, mainly Saudi. It's a Saudi, it's a Sunni Shia civil war being played out through Syria with America as a bystander, a relatively unin, uninvested bystander. But the history that I don't think people, and I want to get this out first before I say things that are going to make people kind of get really upset and turn off. I really urge people, there's a book that I would really urge people to read called Power and the Idealists by Paul Berman, who's a New York intellectual from, he's a left-wing intellectual, and he talks about the history of the 1968 generation. So it's called Power and the Idealists. It concentrates on people like Bernard Kushner, who ended up as the French foreign minister, created uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and Joska Fischer, who was ended up as, I think, foreign, foreign affairs minister in the German government as well. But they came from the 1968 generation. They were protesters. They were kind of an really anti-establishment figures in, in the 60s, sort of late 60s riots. There was even a controversy that Joska Fischer some photos emerged of him at a riot, I think attacking a policeman. And there was a kind of big scandal in Germany and there was a big sort of trial by media. And Paul Berman tells the story of this 1968 generation and how they were deeply opposed to Western power, deeply suspicious of Western power, but then they entered government. And there, and there was a, a gradual realization that was growing through the 90s as this kind of generation grew, grew into power of what do we do about, and it came to a head over Yugoslavia. It came to a head over um, Kosovo in particular, but also the intervention in Yugoslavia. And the status quo at the time from the British Tory government and from most of the sort of the old powers, British conservative government and most of the kind of right-wing powers around the world was, this is nothing to do with us. Yugoslavia has nothing to do with us. It's, we, they're a sovereign nation, all of these same, arguments that you get to see now. And ironically, that became one of the biggest recruiting sergeants for Islamism was our failure to intervene in Yugoslavia in the 90s. There were, there were kind of pamphlets being made, handed out at mosques saying, look, the West does not care about Muslims being killed in Yugoslavia. This is, and that was, a, that was one of the initial kind of, now people look at, oh, well, it's Iraq and we've radicalized. And a lot of that's true, but this was the initial kind of they don't care about Muslim lives. And this, there was a growing awareness of that time of like responsibility. What happens when you're in positions of responsibility? And Kushner and Fisher and many others, this, this fragile consensus around humanitarian intervention, like genuine humanitarian intervention grew through the 90s and then was tested and happened most, most obviously in Kosovo, most obviously in the Yugoslav uh, conflict. And that, and he tells, Paul Berman tells this story, and then that, that consensus was then just demolished with Iraq. Such a cynical, 
I think Iraq is a more complicated narrative than a lot of people give it credit for. I think there were like a huge number of different motivations for the different people involved from total cynicism on the part of Cheney to kind of idealism on the part of Wolfowitz to kind of some weird psychodrama on behalf of kind of George W. Bush. And I saw Tony Blair as someone who was trying to hold together this like thing would not be held together because the American unilateral invasion in Iraq basically just obliterated the sense of common purpose. And, and, and that was then lost and it's probably been lost for a generation because of how badly thought out, how bad, how cynical, how um, just stupid the Iraq invasion and aftermath was. But then you had the after Iraq. I was part of an organization in 2006 called the Houston Manifesto that tried to, that said, whatever you thought about Iraq, we should all be pro-civil society thriving in, in Iraq now. We, and it, it featured a lot of people who were, were old-style trade unionists, because the first thing that happened in Iraq after the war was that trade unionists were massacred by the so-called insurgents, like the Islamists, like one of the first things that they did was try to destroy civil society. They murdered trade unionists. And a lot of people on the left said, I can't get anyone on the left to give a shit about this. This is horrific. These are the people we should be supporting. And no one cares. Everyone's just cheering on the insurgents, wanting America to get, to get a bloody nose. And we've lost our minds. And this dynamic where people cannot see past the crimes of the West and the, the idiocy of like, which obviously exist and cannot see things, cannot see reality as far as I'm concerned. Now we're coming, you've got me on a little bit of a rant here, Lehman. So if you want me to, if you want me to stop at any point, I, I will come to Syria because I think Syria is the most obvious example of just cynical double standards on behalf of commentators and it, it gets me personally, it gets me really personally, because I covered, I've covered Syria quite intensely since 2012. I've got friends who are going there doing documentaries. I've covered the refugee situation in, in Lebanon, in Jordan, and seen, and it, it has got to the point in the UK, and I think this is utterly shameful, that... Syrian refugees have been banned from the so-called Stop the War coalition in the UK, which is the same kind of memeplex, the Assange, Jeremy Corbyn, Seamus Milne, Glenn Greenwald, memeplex. That is, as I said, I think it's kind of dominant. Syrian refugees were banned from speaking at Stop the War events because they were calling for intervention. And it, and it um, put a hole in the narrative of well, this was obviously just an American regime change war that we need to oppose. And they were saying, no, no, we want help. This is not Iraq. Syria is not Iraq. I could, I could rant on for a little bit more, but... Um, uh, let's any... pause there because yeah. that's... Uh, I mean, it sounds to me like you're describing a huge tangle of issues. And so yeah. like, pulling them apart, teasing them apart is going to be interesting. There's obviously ways that particular historical events such as Iraq, but probably also there have been multiple events like that over the last few generations have given people a certain flavor. There's also a sense in which there's a lot to critique about 
the um, underlying mechanisms and side effects of the institutions that favor liberal interventionism. There's also a lot of really weak, naive critique of those institutions, which often come out of, like you're saying, a place of uh, uh, solipsistic absorption with our own crimes and not necessarily looking at the interplay of crimes that are going on in the world. And then there's the limitations that are imposed on the discourse by the mediums that we're using. And then there's the question of why aren't we getting a higher quality of nuance take from the people who supposedly represent a higher take on the world. Mm. Those are all, you know, very interesting. We can go into all of them and we probably should. I think I'd like to circle around first to the question of how people discuss these things. Because mm. see, there's an interesting, there's a good argument that sometimes military strikes are de-escalation. Sometimes they're justified. And, you know, maybe this is a territory which isn't exactly under Assad's control. It isn't exactly a strike on Syria. And maybe presidents do have a, a right to limited retaliatory strikes. And there's all this kind of argument. And that's pretty legitimate. There's also a lot of concern that Violence begets violence. This is, you know, we can't keep contravening principles of international law and bypassing the authority structure of our own governments, that we're not very good at interventions and we, we have, we're addicted to bad interventions in situations that are more complex than we know how to deal with. And we're just uh, perpetuating a logic that doesn't really do what it wants to do. So those are both two really good perspectives. But the problem is, Everybody wants to shoehorn their whole perspective into each news event as it comes up. So when, for example, President Biden sends a strike, suddenly each person is sending a tiny message in cyberspace about a recent event, and they want to incorporate their entire worldview into that. And it's just not going to work. It's too small a space. It's going to get mangled and pressurized and partial, even if it's coming from people who are cognitively more sophisticated than that. So there's a real problem in terms of uh, the medium, but also this feeling we all have that we have to somehow urgently get our whole message across relative to each news article. Mm. And there's also the, the fact that these, these topics, there's a huge amount of information warfare going on. Like major actors are... Especially, I mean, take Syria as an example. I mean, Syria is probably one of the most heavily contested narrative spaces on earth. And you have Russia and Assad, who are both, and you could argue, um, Western narratives as well. But, I mean, Russia's got a pretty sophisticated information warfare capability. And also it's, it's very opaque. It's very difficult to see exactly what's going on there as well. And I, I mean, you pointed to the latest strike, which is what kind of triggered me to kind of <laughs> uh, break my silence on it a little bit. And that's part of partly, it's partly that it's very difficult to give enough context. Like it's very easy. The simplistic views are very, are very memeable. They're very kind of, the truth is difficult nuance and requires a huge amount of context and that's very difficult to do on a certainly on an, in an environment like Facebook where personally I, my 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 felt sense of Facebook over the last few years is that the quality of discourse has been going down and down and down and down 
possibly related to the groups feature where most conversation is now happening in these kind of artificially accelerated race to the bottom kind of dynamics. We recently put out something about Clubhouse as well, whether Clubhouse can kind of, uh, because of the nature of voice medium and uninterrupted conversation might be a better medium for sense-making. It's possible. But yeah, I, I did want to kind of finish my thoughts about Syria in particular. Yeah, please, go ahead. As I said, I have been covering it since 2012. And also the, the wrong comparisons are made. I mean, I'm going to dogleg a tiny bit here. Like, you can't compare Libya, for example, to, to Iraq. Like, whenever people reel off, like, look at what we're doing in Iraq, Libya, Syria, as if these are completely, as, as if they're comparable. And people forget, like, when the air strikes were done on Libya, Gaddafi was just about to roll over Benghazi. Like there was, a, there was a, a moment, and even the Russians kind of signed off on that and then kind of regretted having done so with the Security Council. But this is not, these are not directly comparable. But, but Syria, for example, I don't think enough people know what, the, what actually happened in Syria, what, has, what the long game by Assad and Putin and what it's involved. I had friends who went in there in 2012 when it was the Arab Spring, the the majority of the protests that they were covering were young, enthusiastic, idealistic young people. And the Mubakarat, I've never said that properly, the Syrian secret police basically infiltrated, arrested, and locked up a lot of them in the jails with, um, and they deliberately locked them up in the jails with a lot of the kind of hardcore Islamists. Because Syria was a massively repressive regime. Most of the Islamist protests against Assad, they were arrested, they were jailed. And from the beginning, Assad tried to, and then it sort of escalated from there, the Free Syrian Army, which was largely defectors from Assad's army, began. And from the beginning, Assad tried to portray it as, this is, these are all terrorists, it's me versus the terrorists, the Islamist terrorists. And that wasn't true at the beginning, so he set out to make it true. He locked up the the kind of the, the students with the Islamists to try and get them more radicalized. He then released the Islamists and effectively um, concentrated most of his fire on the, the more moderate rebels while ignoring the Islamists. The reason that Islamic State grew in the way that it did was that they were basically ignoring it and allowing it to develop. At the same time, and I had friends who were in Aleppo and Homs who made award-winning documentaries from there. And they came back and I remember talking to them in the, in the newsroom. And this guy had been all over the world. He'd covered warfare kind of, he, he was not new to warfare. And he was deeply shocked when he said, I've never seen anything like this. They're, deli they're deliberately bombing civilian areas. He said the, the, the only reason he could think of was just to radicalize them further. I mean, these are barrel bombs pushed out of helicopters onto civilian areas. With as far as he was concerned, there was no military reason for it. But what it did was sent people more and more crazy. It made them more and more angry. It made them more and more radicalized. And this was a deliberate ploy from the beginning of Assad, of like war crimes. And then when Russia got involved, America kind of they said they had a red line in terms of kind of the gas attacks. Again, people kind of talk about old oh, Duma. Um, 
There's doubts about whether Duma happened. I mean, there, there's multiple, multiple gas attacks, chlorine gas, mustard gas, sarin. Like this is not, this is part of the disinformation campaign that it kind of gets stuck on this one attack that has had so much kind of misinformation poured all over it. This is happening. America said they had a red line. They then kind of pulled out of that red line. I think it was 2014, 2015. And then Russia saw an opportunity and got involved in, in the conflict. And the sort of things that Russia has been doing in Syria since then, no Western country could ever get away with. Like deliberately, the UN used to give the... Um, coordinates for hospitals to in any conflict they'll give coordinates of hospitals so that they're avoided in terms of the the targeting they had to stop that because the russians were using the coordinates to deliberately target hospitals like people just like people don't take that in when you say it like they are deliberately targeting hospitals think about what that means think about what that involves and the interesting thing from a journalist perspective is that there were people like Mary Colvin, who legendary Sunday Times journalist, went in time and time again and was eventually killed in Homs deliberately by, she was targeted and deliberately killed by the regime in Homs. What the sense of, of people who'd been in was that things got broken because previously, like in Rwanda and places like that, eventually, if you showed enough of that kind of horror, there would be some kind of intervention. And things got broken in about 2013, 2014, that it didn't matter how much horror you showed, how much people knew about it, nothing happened in Syria. No intervention, no, no, no one took any responsibility whatsoever, not even for a no-fly zone. I mean, you could talk about, okay, well, we don't, we don't believe in kind of intervention in terms of boots on the ground, that's going to make things worse, and you can argue the pros and cons of that. But what about a no-fly zone to stop Assad doing... Um, utilizing his complete air superiority to just massacre people in, in Aleppo. Like, what about stopping the Russians doing what they're doing? I mean, no one wants to escalate the situation, but what I see on supposedly in, intelligent people is just a complete lack of empathy and lack of sympathy and lack of, in the end, a total denial of reality. It's like, okay, we can argue about Western intervention, whether it works, whether it doesn't work, but let's not let's not pretend that what's going on is not going on. Like, and and this inability to hold the complexity of, yes, we can have serious doubts about Western motives and Western intervention and Western actions on all sorts of levels, but do not obscure what is going on, what Russia is doing, what Assad is doing, the deep evil cynicism of what they've done and what they've got away with and just think about like what would happen if we did a tenth of what russia has done there would be there would be right righteously and rightly there would be protests outside every single embassy there would be people on the streets we would dwarf the anti-war marches that we saw before iraq rightly but then we just completely lose any sense of perspective or any sense of kind of like this total relativism and inability to look reality in its face, which I see so much on, yeah, in these communities. That's yeah, my kind I, of Syria rant. I appreciate I think it's worth the, getting out at the beginning. I appreciate the moral passion that you're bringing to this, and and in what you were just saying, I hear 
uh, at least three problems. So let's say time, access, and suspicion. The time problem is that it takes extra time. You have to spend time with something, with some information, with an information source in order to start to appreciate the nuances. And one of those nuances, um, allowing yourself to have a moral response to what the complexity of that landscape is. And we mostly do things very quickly. We have to, we feel like we have to have an opinion immediately as soon as we've heard the information. And that's just absolutely not a way to get a map of the world, especially now that we know um, any content can be faked at this point. So you cannot get information from quickly assessing what type of content you're seeing and just checking it against your worldview. You have to spend time with something in order to bypass the uh, deception mechanisms. Then there's the access problem, right? You've got a more privileged access to the Syrian situation and information about it than most people do. And most people's access is hemmed in by an enormous number of highly incentivized um, corporate, political, and algorithmic players who want to channel you into certain information zones rather than others. So almost nobody runs into the richness of information that you're drawing from. And then the mm. third part is this growing sense that nothing is trustworthy anymore, right? So if you come on and you say, hey, I worked at Channel 4 and they won an Emmy for news, there's a whole bunch of people now who go, well, that's an immediate reason to discredit it, <laughs> right? If people go, hey, that was checked out and it turns out to be false, you run into people now and go, well, that means it must be true because the fact checkers have been discredited. And so everybody's entering into this numinous space of uncertainty where we know we're being manipulated and we know we don't have access to the information. We don't feel like we can make sense. And so anything goes, but even though there are real problems with institutional sources, like say a good documentary or a, a fairly reputable news source, if you pull away from that, where does that leave you, right? It leaves you wandering in the wilderness and you might find some actual alternative truths when you're wandering in the wilderness, but there's a good chance you might go down a rabbit hole into regressive paranoia as well. So there's this, um, our overall relationship to information has become compromised. It's a bit like you were saying about the, you know, if you can, people used to feel like if you can get the message out, if you can show people in the world, the horrors that are going on, well, that doesn't work anymore. Getting the message out. It's like having a mass mobilization where people go out in the streets and express their values doesn't seem to do anything. And we're slowly becoming aware that we can't respond to all the information. We can't trust all the information. Expressing our values to people doesn't seem to cause any change. And we're in a kind of entrenched position where everything is, is just a who knows now. Yeah. And yeah. That absolutely also affects very smart people and putatively higher grade sense-making communities. Yeah. Yeah. No, you've, you put your finger on the, the issue which is kind of the epistemic fracturing. And I, I was thinking about this earlier and it's, it reminds me more of, so we've put out quite a lot about kind of the, the decline of sense-making and the decline of the media. And I feel like I'm, I'm trying to hold both pieces. Like I do think that there's been a sort of substantial degradation of the media, but it's not as bad as, like, for example, the, the Jordan Hall idea of the blue church, I think is really, really useful. But I think that if it's taken, it's a useful heuristic, but if it's taken too far, I think you end up in kind of a nihilistic place. And the, the irony is 
reminds me of uh, G.K. Chesterton, what he said, when a man stops believing in God, he'll believe in anything. When people stop, and it's like the epistemic closure of, of not trusting the mainstream media does not put people in a kind of like, in a, in a place of like weighing up all the different information that's coming in. It does not put people in a, in a kind of neutral space. They tend to, to bias immediately to filling that gap with much less credible sources. You end up with like the Vanessa Beelies of this world or yeah, the, the, the really like the, the outright propagandists, Eva Bartlett, like these are not credible figures, but this is where, this is some of the conversation I've been having on this thread is like people start, I think with a really valuable and important realization about kind of mainstream sense-making, but it goes too far. It, it ends up going too far and then you end up being drifting over to something like a conspiracy theory where you're completely epistemically closed to all input from anything that doesn't fit your narrative and you collapse into the other side. And that, that's the concern, I think, is that I think, I, I think it's really, really, yeah, it's, it, it's concerning to me how, I don't know how we put things back together on the other side of the, the kind of decline of the mainstream, because there's no way of making sense of anything without like having been in a newsroom and realizing like how much intelligence, how much awareness, how much background there is in places like that. And Channel 4 News is, is if the narratives about kind of American regime, regime change war in Syria were true, Channel 4 News is one of the places that would be covering them. Like Channel 4 News has done a lot on Yemen, has done a lot on where, places where the West is definitely culpable. They were incredibly active during the, during the Iraq war. They published the attorney general's advice that made things incredibly difficult for the government in the UK. Like this is a, this is a, a news organization that would jump at the chance for showing up Western power. And yet we've been covering Syria since the beginning. I say we, I'm no longer there, but Channel for News has been covering Syria since the beginning had a, an Arabic speaker in from the beginning, an Iraqi guy who was looking at all of the material that's being uploaded from Syria uh, as a full-time job, basically sort of tracking things that have been going on. It's not, there are issues with the mainstream media, but it's not that bad. Like it's not that corrupt that you can reject everything that comes out from, and then, because then you're just left with this very thin sliver of, quite frankly, like very not credible stuff. Like it's not, and if you read it with the same kind of eye, like people in this space talk about, oh, Russell conjugation and the way that things are shaded by the mainstream, but then they completely forget that skepticism when they look on the other side. They're reading stuff that, that is, would fail any of the tests that they've just kind of built up for the mainstream media. I want to just see some inability, distance. The inability to hold that insight I think is a hugely problematic issue here because, uh, you know, not just with mainstream media, but whether you reject mainstream media and move out into alternative information zones, there's a huge amount of responsibility on you. If you're going to go into wildernesses, you have to change yourself somehow, right? And so we have these communities, for example, the integral political community, where people who know 
right? They could, it's, it's a bit like teaching to the test, right? You go in school, you learn something, you put it on the test and a week later, you don't remember it and it doesn't mean anything. So you remember it in certain situations and contexts, but it's not really assimilated into your being. So you forget it in any other context as soon as there's an incentive or an identity, uh, as soon as you have to do anything, it goes out the window. So yes, a person can sit back and say, ah, I've got a very big picture meta take on what the world situation is. But as soon as I see a news article, as soon as I have an emotion, as soon as I have five minutes to send a message, it goes out the window because I don't want to have to invest the internal effort and energy to weigh things out, to learn things, to readjust my own perspective, to think about the principles that I actually ostensibly know and see how they apply in this set of informations. So mm -hmm. I think there's a huge, uh, huge disconnect between what people ostensibly know in these communities uh, and what they're actually able to embody because the embodiment takes uh, the exercise of psychotechnologies uh, and that's an investment of energy that we don't necessarily have. And we're certainly not incentivized to do that by our major information platforms. Hmm. Yeah, and then there's just a simple, then there's just a simple lack of engagement, I guess. I, I just think a lot of it is. That's right, but then again, like that's yeah. another, engagement is an energy expenditure. Hmm. And we don't feel like we have that energy. We don't wanna put that effort in. And we're constantly suggested to now that we may not have to. Like the way Facebook works is here's a bunch of things that are tailored exactly for your currently existing framework. They don't require any energy from you. So you feel like, oh, I can use that part of me that requires no investment of energy into discernment. So we're, we're slowly acclimatizing ourselves to what I think of in my mind. I think of it as a medieval framework where we just have our quick response. Uh, and we don't, uh, we don't feel morally obligated to make an internal energy investment to make sense of the world. We feel like that should be handed to us immediately. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've seen it as we're kind of in a no man's land. I mean, from a sort of, from the widest perspective, we're moving from one stable structure potentially to another. I don't know. I mean, we're certainly going through the valley of sense-making in terms of moving away from the, from the kind of mainstream, offloading our sense-making capacity to the, to the mainstream, but we don't yet have a kind of decentralized way of coming to truth. And it feels like a very dangerous place. And also, I think a lot of people don't have enough awareness of who the bad actors are. Like there's an incredibly, there's a really amazing book by... Uh, Peter Pomerantsev called This Is Not Propaganda, where he looks at effectively how propaganda is used as a weapon around the world. He looks at Russia and Ukraine. He looks at the Philippines. He looks at different areas. And he, he was the guy, Peter Pomerantsev was the guy who a lot of people will be familiar with uh, Adam Curtis. And Adam Curtis, I think in Hypernormalization, talked about Vladimir Surkov as an advisor to, to Putin. And Surkov came from reality TV. And he basically, his, his technique was to fund all of the different groups that might oppose Putin and then, then let it be known that he'd done that. To basically to call into question anything and everything that you're seeing. And it was a very nihilistic 
strategy that was very, very effective. And Peter Pomerantsev was the guy who highlighted that in one of his book, earlier books called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible about Russia and about how Russia kind of the post-truth virus took root originally in Russia because they, their system was obliterated in 1989 and it's a very, very powerful memeplex. Post-truth nihilism is a very powerful actor and he then came back to the UK. He, so Pomerantsev was also working in reality TV in Russia at the time and saw this happen, came back to the UK and then saw the same post-truth virus spreading in America and in the UK. And then his latest book, This Is Not Propaganda, looks at kind of the, the, this post-truth landscape and who the most powerful mimetic actors are. And one of the most powerful mimetic actors is the rejection, like the belief that is kind of widespread in a lot of these communities as well, that Russiagate was a whole load of nothing, for example, in the US. Like it, it was overplayed by the, by the media, by the kind of mainstream media, for sure. But it wasn't nothing. Like Russia is an incredibly powerful information actor and was up to no good. And there were kind of nods and winks be between the Trump campaign and the, the Russians. Like the fact that that has been dismissed and is kind of accepted wisdom in so many of these places that there was nothing to it is itself information warfare. So the information warfare around these, I, I, I think personally, I think there's, a there's an incredible naivety. And I think part of the suspicion that a lot of people have of mainstream narratives that they can sense on some level that they're being lied to, but they're being lied to by a lot of the new media sources that they've replaced their kind of legacy media with. Like that's where most of the, like Mint Press News and places like this, these are, these are information warfare actors, whether they're directly funded by Russia or whether they're funded by other people who are trying to cause misinformation. I, I don't know, but a lot of these places are. A lot of these places are. So I think there's this kind of sense of like, I can't trust everything, anything. I'm being lied to, but I think they're being lied to by a lot of the, the places that they're finding their alternative news. There's yeah, a kind of cynicism, a weird cynicism towards the mainstream that they then lose completely on the alternative media environment. Uh, it seems like there's different populations with different senses about whether they lean to the alternative or they lean to the mainstream, because mainstream still has a huge amount of dominance in a lot of areas of the world. But in both cases, it's like I was saying before, the people don't want to uh, remember and take an effort to apply a balancing mechanism. So I think, you know, how do we make sense of this thing going forward when the technology and the incentives help generate this post-truth environment that clearly works for certain predatory actors on this stage? So we need uh, sense-making heuristics of various kinds, right? So one of them might be a very simple way as well. In order to begin to evaluate a situation, you first rule out the mainstream narrative and whatever you think is the alternative narrative. Like just take both of those off the table to begin with and then start to have a look. Now you might regenerate either. It helps to define what you mean by the mainstream narrative. I'm, I, I try to, I'm, I've used it a few times in this conversation, but I try and avoid using the word mainstream media yeah, because it's a, it's a, I think it obscures far more it's, than- It's a vague term. Um, it, yeah, it's I mean, because it makes it sense. Covers, for yeah. people who are looking to alternative news sources, 
right? Mm -hmm. And they have a feeling that they are being deceived either overtly or through the implicit background of the general media environment. And that's not a dumb perception to have, but it's dumb to buy into it and immediately flip to the other side and then believe whatever the alternative is selling you. Sort of like the, I mean, I started to think about this a lot around the 9-11, you know, what went on there, right? It would be somewhat foolish to believe the political authorities of the United States and the media enterprises that back up that story because there are discrepancies. However, it would be equally or more foolish to simply believe anybody who tells you that that narrative is false, right? Mm -hmm. That the basic dualism seems to catch almost everybody. Either you're on the side of the story we're all telling ourselves through the major networks and the major news stories, um, or you're the adversary of that. And now you're extremely gullible to any alternative source of information. We have to fight that gullibility in both directions simultaneously just to start the conversation that we need to have. And I think there's a nuance that needs to come in. Like it's true that the, the media is, has certain inbuilt biases, but I think being aware of what those biases are yeah. and not rejecting it outright. Like because it, it is a simple fact that there are still more consequences and more fact checking going on in in sure. most of the the mainstream uh, or legacy media like there are still not as many consequences as maybe there should but there are still consequences for getting things like really factually wrong like that is there is still a there is still some correction process for those kind of things we definitely don't want to dog leg into 911 because that's that's a whole <laughs> okay. kind of worms I, I would ask if you, think, have, you yeah. read, have you read the book, The Looming Tower? I've read bits of it. I, I, it seems to me there's a, um, a sense-making spectrum, right? And we normally talk too much about a left-right spectrum. And there's a spectrum of certainty to uncertainty, right? So there's, I, I just immediately believe a piece of information I came across and my feeling about that, inf right? Right up to, I have no idea what's going on in the situation. And everybody's choosing a spot on this slide rule. Like I remember when, when I first heard about the General Suleimani assassination, my first thought was maybe the Ayatollah was in on this. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the appropriate parameters of evaluating any news story is. Like, because there's a sort of, here's the story, and then do you believe the story or do you believe against the story? And I don't know if the story frame itself is leaving out so many things that it might be a complete misinterpretation. But nonetheless, in any given response, I have to choose some spot on that gradient between certainty and uncertainty in order to begin my own process. And I think everybody's sort of seeing that that spectrum is there and getting really weirded out by it. But there's also the, the point that every single individual event is contextualized by everything else. Yes. Like, what, for example, the, that, that, the Suleimani assassination, like knowing, for example, whether the Ayatollah might have been in on it, to, to know whether that's like a logical leap or not, you have to know so many things about kind of the power structure within Iran. You have to know kind of what are the, what's the current state of like the Islamic guard, like has he fallen out with it, et cetera, et cetera. Was Israel involved? Like all of those questions are context dependent, which is also why we probably have a different view on, on, on 9-11. But 
like for for me, I think 9-11 is a perfect example where people get lost and argue over the minutest details of like construction or the free fall speed of buildings or whatever. And I've yet to hear anyone answer. Like for me, why I don't believe the conspiracy narrative is fairly straightforward. And I've never heard anyone kind of address this. It's, it's that if you believe that they were capable of pulling off something like that, why could they not link Iraq to it? Why did we go through like two years of tortuous presentations of like Colin Powell to the UN trying to kind of, oh, well, there was one meeting between Mohammed Attar and Iraqi intelligence in Prague that probably didn't happen. It's like, if you could create an event like this, why could you not create a far more convincing casus belli for invading Iraq? Absolutely. That that for me is is one example. And that's a contextual thing. Or why would you make all of the, why would you make all of the, hijackers Saudi that's incredibly embarrassing like and and these are the things that's a great example of it going two ways right like in some ways it's the same kind of thing of going here's a narrative that seems to emerge from the international authorities and the major media institutions and we could pick that apart a little bit on some anomalies and on some questionable sources and why would it be done that way now that exact same thing applies to whatever the dominant conspiracy narratives are Right? That's what you just did was, hey, well, here's some, you can make a documentary about why the conspiracy narrative has some weird anomalies and why would they have done it this way and why didn't they do it like this? So, you know, in my own, just personally, I, I don't really take any position on anything. I just sort of assign probabilities in an uncertainty, right? There's, this is the story we hear mostly on the news. It's got some weight to it. Here's an alternative story. It's got some weight to it. Here's another story that I don't even know about. It might not be either of those two things, right? We could be way off on certain bits of data that I don't even know which bits of data are incorrect. Maybe it's something so weird that uh, it's much easier to believe either the mainstream or the conspiracy story. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking at a you know, a set of possibilities that's more like a quantum wave distribution. Where's the electron? Well, it's it's here this much, and it's here this much, and it's here this much. And that's a, you know, in physics, that's a more precise way to try to figure out what you're dealing with. It feels very, um, a bit anxious, you know, that people feel like they want to really lock one down. Either I'm going to go with what I feel like, it, you know, what Weinstein calls the gated institutional narrative, or I'm going to go with, a, uh, a very visceral narrative that attacks that narrative. But what people don't want to do is, is show up in the uncertainty of the fact that we all just don't know and we don't know what we don't know and we have to go ahead anyway. And there's multiple interpretive players in any space. And we have to somehow take that seriously without ceasing to move forward. Yeah, and it's very rare to find someone who can actually walk the walk with Holding, holding possibilities rather than collapsing into certainty. I think someone like Daniel Schmachtenberger does it among the best that I've seen. Like I, I genuinely, he does genuinely hold things with like, I'm 20% sure about this. I'm 50% sure about this. I, and, and you can sort of see him going through that process of reassessing his kind of beliefs in real time. There's an interest, there's another factor here that I think has to be introduced and that's the psychological dimension. Sure. And, and I think, like we're attracted to different narratives for psychological reasons. And that, that I think has to become part of the conversation, at least from the ability of us to start inquiring into like 
what is my psychological attachment to this particular narrative or to this particular, you know, this particular kind of memeplex. And it's difficult to do because it feels like it's kind of an ad hominem argument. But for me, a lot of the, a lot of the reactionary anti-imperialist, like America is always to blame or the West is always to blame. And I'm just looking for the facts to kind of make that true. To me, that feels very infantile. It feels very solipsistic. It feels very, it's a, it for me feels like a kind of unresolved parental dynamic. But I think we need to bring, I think, I, I don't think we're going to be able to introduce, to get to a place of like a sense making map of like where, where the different sort of meme plexes are and what the different attachments are and what the different kind of strange attractors of the, of the, information landscape are without that dimension being brought in as well and i'd love to see what that might look like what is the what is the nihilistic memeplex what are the like I, I i don't know if anyone's working on that and i'd love to hear if they are well like what does can you map out the information landscape as a kind of like strange attractor of different different belief systems let me tell you what my minimum is, right? So when I started the Integral Politics Forum on Facebook, what I wanted was to understand what the minimum number of variables that the integral meta theory suggests should be in play in a political discussion. Because one of the things that really stood out to me was that we come from the integral point of view, we conflate progressive and conservative with left and right. So the integral model is that there are emergent layers of complexity that hold these different meme plexes, and they are somewhat identifiable through social history as well as individual maturation stages, but that each one of these can be temperamentally polarized to the left or the right, and each one can show up in a more healthy and comprehensive or more pathological and narrow fashion. And also, they can imitate and thwart each other. So if we're looking at some of the very first move is to separate left and right from actual progressive and traditional. Uh, and in most media discussions, the progressives and the left are put together and the conservatives and the traditionalists are put together. And that's not necessarily the case. So that's the first thing to disentangle. And then you have to ask yourself whether you're looking at a good representative of that structure or not. And the pathological ones tend to revert and take the stylistic form of more primitive levels. So that's mm. my, like that's the skeleton from my, which I start, right? You can make it much more elaborate than that, but I think that's the minimum. And one of the places it shows up is with people who are uh, ostensibly progressive or postmodernist. But when you look at their behavior, it's either modern or pre-modern and how they respond to things. They're not actually presenting a, a healthy, stable, higher level critique of the modern institutions and how we would get them to the next level. Instead, they are either just participating in the given system or even regressively falling back, but they're using the terminology that's derived from uh, postmodern thinkers. So we have a whole situation in which lower levels, this is a great Ken Wilber point, right? A primitive tribe can't build an atomic bomb, but it can use an atomic bomb if modernity generates one, 
Likewise, if you have leading edge thinkers who generate new ideas, terms, and concepts, those can be used by people who aren't even up to the level of the current society we live in. And then they stand in for actual progress and they aren't progressive at all. And the people that don't want progress can point to them and say, hey, look, that progress doesn't work. It's actually evil, nihilistic, and sabotaged. And the people that do want progress have a hell of a time teasing themselves apart from the people who use the same terms, but don't actually represent the same uh, level of mimetic functioning. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can think of a few examples. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess my I'm interested, because we kind of came into this conversation a little bit I'm familiar with integral. I'm familiar familiar with as a kind of casual study, but I and I guess my question coming in was, how is it applicable to the foreign policy discussion that we that we just had? Like, there were a few people in the conversation that I was seeing online that sort of seemed to be coming from a what I, what I saw as a very kind of inflexible position about well, this is what integral means. You must think about Biden's kind of airstrike, for example, we integral to be second tier means you must be opposed to this, which seems ludicrous to me. Like, yeah, it just seems like if that's what integral means, or if that's what second tier means, then it discredits integral for me. Obviously, what we predict would happen is that in any of these conversation spaces, you're going to get people showing up from different temperaments and different biases, right? Even if they can all use some of the same terminology, Right. So one of the most important things in integral thinking is not that there are these levels, but these levels apply to different lines of intelligence or different modules of functioning. The fact that you can talk it doesn't mean you can feel it or act on it emotionally. Those are their own quasi independent forms of development. So in any space where people can have, you know, a a second tier type discussion, they're all going to be coming from different polarizations and different lower levels usually in their own emotional and moral temperament so we're anticipating that that's going to be the complex layout of these spaces Um, i think one of the most important things is to be able to deploy this rubric to see who's actually in the integral sense making discussion right because obviously anybody can say whatever they want in most spaces online but for you to recognize who's actually a potential contributor to that discussion, what do you look for in the way they speak, right? Are they referencing these different uh, mimetic styles? Are they bringing in information from left and right? Are they applying some kind of meta perspective to their own sense making, things like that? So I think one of the values of the theory actually being embodied is it should help you know who can come into that conversation and who's just mouthing off with new terminology. Mm. Yeah. So one of the critiques I hear around you and rebel wisdom is that the attempt there to be post ideological actually leans into certain covert conservative biases and attracts people of a certain temperament who don't necessarily um, converge around the progressive critique and the minimum set of economic upgrades that are necessary in the world in order to put us in a position where development could actually happen, right? It's sort of the Brent Cooper critique that it's too IDW and not enough Michael Brooks. Now, Brent Cooper is obviously a... uh, 
self-aggrandizing person who likes to indulge in ad hominem attacks to some degree as stylistically. But what do you make, what do you think there's any validity to that kind of critique that the, the ethos in which you're exploring uh, leans in one direction too much, is a little bit too institutional, is a little bit too conservative and leaves out the actual rebels, the actual rebellion, which is a sort of insurrection to upgrade the economic system of the world today. And that that's what we need before anything else can get fixed. What's your take on that? I would say that it's certainly true. I think the cultural landscape is changing. I think we're in a different place than we were. Like rebel wisdom started with a kind of, it started with a couple of films about Jordan Peterson as Jordan Peterson being like, and when I first saw Jordan Peterson, I was like, wow, this, this is exactly the message that I, I, I kind of thought this is going to go viral. This is the, exactly the message that is going to, that is being edited out of the kind of low resolution liberal worldview and the return of a sort of solid conservative perspective is necessary. And like, I think that obviously has been borne out by the massive success of Jordan Peterson. That's 2018, 29, yeah, 2018 as well, I think was the emergence of the intellectual dark web or the kind of consolation of the intellectual dark web. And I think that also was the kind of coming to fruition of a lot of the kind of internet culture rebellion against green postmodern liberal the green postmodern liberal worldview that kind of infected a lot of the media, kind of symbolically with the kind of Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson argument. I think we're now in a different place where a more of a synthesis is needed. And I've been critical of a lot of the IDW figures for being too conservative. Like I had a pretty punchy interview with Dave Rubin. We also put out criticisms of Jordan Peterson it's never going to be enough for the Brent Coopers of this world. But I've also got, have you heard, I mean, everything we've been talking about here would be implicitly critical of the Michael Brooks left. Like I'm, I'm very familiar with the Michael Brooks left. One of the great tragedies was that I was due to have a conversation with Michael Brooks shortly. Yeah, I was, I was deeply shocked by, by his, his death. Um, and one of the tragedies is I do think that he could have been a uniting figure for these conversations. Like I, I, think, I think he would have had to, but the big question that I know that Brett and a few of the other people had about him was whether he was a good faith actor. And I think he's done a lot of kind of, you, you could look at the way kind of he, he made fun of people like Dave Rubin and argued that he wasn't, but I actually think that he was, he was certainly a very, very intelligent guy and he had a background of integral theory. And I, yeah, it's a great tragedy. And I actually, messaged Brent after he died to offer my condolences, which were genuinely felt. And I knew how much Brent valued him. Um, Brent somehow took that as me rubbing his nose in it or something, which I find, yeah, I find deeply shocking. Uh, but there's a whole history there with Brent that, that I think a lot of people have, have, have had. But I did want to put that on the record, that that was a genuinely felt um, sympathy um, an, an attempt of reaching out that obviously didn't go very well. So I do think that the, uh, and it, yeah, Rebel Wisdom has built up um, a YouTube audience that want a certain type of content. And when we put out content that's not along that line, we do get some pushback. 
And that's something that I'm trying to navigate. And we are trying to bring on people that I think, like Nora Bateson, um, Tyson Yonker Porter. Like I, I think we, we have gone beyond the, the IDW Jordan Peterson fanboys some time ago. Is there more that we could do in that conversation, potentially, potentially, but I like the fundamental disagreement that I would have with someone like Brent is that I don't think that fundamentally we're dealing with with like a, the meaning crisis for me is not an economic thing. Economics and social like um, like it's a factor, but I don't think that's the I don't think that's the where the solutions are going to come from. I don't think the solution is that Bernie Sanders should have been elected. I think the solution is I think it's a much more wide wide dissolution of of old structures, and that the solution for that is at the level of I think Peterson is effectively right that the the right level of of engagement is the theological. I think we're going through a deeply theological, a deeply kind of religious, spiritual crisis. And the, the solutions for that are on the level, like my critique of Peterson that I'm going to put out at some point soon is that I think his philosophy was necessary, but not sufficient. And I think why it was not sufficient is really interesting. I think we are going through a deep, yeah, the, the deepest shift that human culture has probably ever gone through. And I think that's, that's where I'm interested. And also at the same time that you can argue that there's a, um, I wouldn't say conservative bias. I mean, you could, you could argue that. I, th I still think even at the same time that I think we've moved on in terms of the critiques of, of culture that we were kind of highlighting in 2018, which was like there's huge blind spots in the liberal worldview that we're just not seeing. And that's a big problem. You look at the, the way that the American media in particular, I don't think the conversation is getting any healthier. Like people, you look at what's going on inside the New York Times or inside a lot of the news, like Matt Taibbi in, in late summer was saying there's been effectively cancel culture revolutions inside many of the institutions. I think that hasn't gone away. Like the, the dynamics, I mean, one of the things is that in 2018, I think I, I stuck my neck out and we stuck our necks out making these points about cancel culture. Like most of my friends are on the left. I come from the liberal left. And I think I, I stuck my neck out making these critiques. In the, in the time since, most of the people that I, that had criticized or had questioned that have, have now come to me and said, look, I know what you were talking about. That's happened to me now. I've been attacked by people within my organization. I'm realizing like the number of people behind the scenes who are saying, look, I don't know how to deal with this kind of woke criticism from bad faith actors within my organization. And I don't know what to do about it. That's only increased. So at the same time as I think we're at a different place in terms of the culture, I don't think that it's got any better. I think that the nature of the cancel culture accusations of racism, sexism, and bigotry inside institutions is only getting more and more, it's, it's, it's only going one way as far as I can see, especially in the States. So how do you hold that with, an, with a recognition that 
And I do think I do think the IDW was effectively reactionary. I don't think it was reactionary. It was reactionary to something that needed to be reacted to, but it didn't hold out. Okay, what is the place on the other side of this? What is a second tier solution that integrates the best of green, that integrates the best of the critiques of modernism? And I I don't think I don't think it did that. And I am interested in like what does that look like? That's the, that's the fundamental conversation that I think needs to be had. And I am interested in hosting that and in inquiring into that. You know, one of the main pieces of the integral view is that you've got these different quadrants that are simultaneously active all the time. So you, you can never really make a sociopolitical solution or an only material solution or an only psychological solution or an only shared ethos solution. You've got to deal with them all. But in terms of figuring out what we do collectively to make change, it's very hard to figure out what has to come first? Like one argument is you need to depressurize the socioeconomic situation before any of these things can happen, before you can get any real upgrade in sense making. But on the other hand, how could you even do that unless you already had some higher level sense making that deals with the fact that people are extremely discoordinated, extremely turned against each other and extremely disengaged from uh, humanitarian factual reality. So, there's no real and, and also that first. the situation in America is incredibly like we're in a very different position in the UK we have a national health service mm-hmm. like the corporate stitch up of America is is uh, unbelievable that you're you're leaving university and kind of like in servitude effectively with very little like there's, there's almost no holiday pay there's almost no maternity pay there's no, there's no healthcare. Like, there's no public. There's very little public healthcare. Like, it, it's truly shocking. Like, genuinely, I think, in if I'd lived in the states, I would, I would probably have a different view on the politics of the situation. I mean, that's worth saying as well. Like, I think we are in a very different place in Europe. So the the other thing I thought of that I wanted to mention a little bit that I think is connected to the foreign policy element as well as the, you know. Um, how do we analyze the situation? How do we go forward element is the integration of aggression, because that's one of the areas in which the, the green <laughs> mimetic zone has traditionally not been very good. And it shows up as their unwillingness to take stands in terms of military intervention, in terms of border security and things like that. Not that you know, not that Bernie Sanders wouldn't protect the borders and do appropriate military strikes if he was in charge, but he doesn't lead with that. Right. There's a sense in which aggression is not of interest to a lot of those people. And I think that's a real deficit in a couple of ways. One is that it causes a lot of people in the so-called progressive left who have a lot of really good ideas about how society should be improved to be um, unaware of their own aggression, feeling like they're not aggressive and hyper reacting to other people's perceived aggression as a kind of transference mechanism. I think it leaves them unable to form alliances with traditionalists, which they would need to do if they're going to outperform the modern neoliberal centrist structure. And also it makes it difficult for them to find the the right-wing postmodernists who are the other half of that pluralistic system, right? You need to be able to get on board with, with the Joe Rogans, right? With the people who have a lot of uh, healthy appreciation for their own embodied aggression. And if we can't yeah. do that, then we can't get a lot of green. And if we can't get a lot of green, we don't have the bridge and the pool of people from which to draw 
to upgrade a lot of people into the so-called second tier way of seeing the world. So this um, response that we have to military strikes, you know, and obviously we indulge in way too much casual violence that does nothing. We've got to really scale that back in a lot of areas. But the in principle rejection of aggressive moves is a is like a black hole within the community who are trying to bring forward these higher ethical and social ideas in my take. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's also leaves people disintegrated and that's the sort of central kind of critique from the right like the soy boys like there, there is something essentially disintegrated about not making friends with your anger and aggression and then it leaks out sideways there's a sort of snideness on the left that just seems to kind of come out i mean i'm not going to say universally but certainly it's a major force like there's something very kind of distasteful about that lack of integration and I think you're right. I think it does have something to do with like the total rejection of, of anything that, that feels like healthy aggression, healthy boundaries, healthy action. And it's something, so we've done, uh, we've done men's work as well. Like we've, we've done men's retreats and part of the men's retreats that we do is there's a big piece in that about tapping into your anger in a healthy way because it's your life force. And your frustration about make friends with your frustration. Your frustration is trying to tell you something about some boundaries you need to set or some actions you need to take or some things you need to do. And almost universally, I'd say that's the piece that the guys who come to our men's retreats are missing. They just don't want to be like those other guys, those angry guys. But unless you've made friends with it, unless you've integrated it, it will take you over at some point. Life will trigger you and it will come out in a way that's uncontrolled and people won't trust you because they don't know what you're capable of because you don't know what you're capable of. And I think that's true at the individual and the social or national scale, right? That the phenomenon of Trump and the phenomenon of Brexit sort of indicates that the, mm, the dominant liberal left ha has not taken the need for aggression, the need for boundaries, the need for patriotism, all of that stuff into account as an energy source. And so then they've ceded that to uh, ethnocentric regressives. Yes. And if we're not going to incorporate that, then somebody else will take it up. And that's a really dangerous thing because even people are recognizing a real value there that's being excluded and they have no choice but to value it somehow. And in a splitting of our values, we end up slowing down the whole progress. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether there's an answer to that. Um, a lot of people have said we need a war. <laughs> I, yeah. well, I mean, maybe if it was the right war, but it's so often not the right war. Mm. And there should be other ways to do it, right? There's a lot of things... The American culture really came alive during and after the Second World War, and it sort of uh, catalyzed the energy of an upgrade for a lot of reasons. One is economic. You know, they left factories all around the world and they didn't really have any enemies. But a lot of it was the nation came together. People came outside of their usual behavioral patterns and they mixed together in a common crusade of some kind. And that turns out to be an enormous part of building collective spirit. But obviously, we can't hope that a set of massacres is what's needed to be able to create that. We need to do something else. We need some kind of quasi-religious mass mobilization of 
ethos generating. And we're currently not very good at that. Our institutions mm -hmm. don't even seem to be trying to create spirit in any sense. Mm. Well, that is something that I think was very powerful about Jordan Peterson's or certainly fueled Jordan Peterson's message and Peterson's rise was, can you reframe your life in that kind of mythological way? Yeah. And he, he was, I think that's why he was effective and why so many people were helped by what he was doing. Well, we could have an entire discussion about Peterson, but uh, <laughs> we've got limited time. We've covered a lot of interesting things about foreign policy, sense-making and where the world is at the moment. And uh, I think for me, the pleasure has been getting to know you a little bit better. And so this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Layman. This was a good conversation. I appreciate the um, opportunity to vent. <laughs>